Well, good morning once again. Last week, uh, if you weren't here, in honor of the Christmas season, we uh, started a four-part series which I've entitled The Story of Christmas. As I said to begin this series, when we think of the story of Christmas, we tend to think of it as presented in the Gospels. But actually, the Christmas story began 4,000 years earlier in the Garden of Eden with the fall. You say, well, why do you believe this? I believe it because that's where the first sin took place. That's where the fall occurred, as I just said. And that's where the story of redemption begins. And you have to realize the story of Christmas is really the story of redemption. Story of redemption. The story of redemption begins with a promise. A promise from God in Genesis 3, verse 15, that someday he would send a redeemer. A redeemer who would save us from our sin and give us eternal life. And so that's why I entitled the first message of this series simply, The Story Begins with a Promise. And that brings us to the second message of the series, which I've entitled, The Story Continues with a Prophecy. Now, the story of Christmas is the story of Jesus first coming to the earth. And we talk about prophecies surrounding Jesus' first coming. You need to understand that there are over 300 of them, over 300 prophecies that deal with his first coming. For example, I'm not going to give you all 300, but I'll give you a few. Isaiah 53 tells us that he would lead a hard life, that he would be a man acquainted with grief and suffering. Psalm 41 verse 9 says that someone close to him, a dear friend, a dear and trusted friend, would betray him. Zechariah 11 verses 11 to 13 tells us how much he would be betrayed for, 30 pieces of silver. And uh, that his betrayer would throw the money down on the floor of the temple, and it would be used to then buy a potter's field. Isaiah chapters 50 and 52 foretell of the savage beating that he would receive at the hands of his captors, how that he would be scourged and his beard would actually be ripped out of his face. Psalm 22, I think, describes more vividly and graphically than even the New Testament, the way he would die. Crucifixion. And of course, Psalm 22 was written 500 years before crucifixion was even invented and 900 years before the Romans began to use it as a form of execution. And Psalm 16 and many other passages speak of his resurrection. And guys, there are many other prophecies that give us a detailed look into Jesus' life and earthly ministry. As I said, over 300 that deal with just his first coming alone. Now, let me just stop here and say this, okay? The skeptics believe that Jesus simply read the prophecies concerning the Messiah and then went around trying to fulfill them so he could claim to be the Messiah. Well, he could do that with some of them, but how do you get somebody to betray you for exactly the right amount of money, 30 pieces of silver? How do you get the Roman soldiers to cast lots for your outer garment, uh, as was prophesied in Scripture? Not to mention, you know, how do you, you know, raise yourself from the dead if you're not God, okay? But people say, no, he just ran around and read the Scriptures, and then he ran around trying to fulfill these prophecies to be able to claim he was Messiah. Well, Jesus fulfilled some of these prophecies by just being born. He didn't do anything. I'll give you three. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, it tells us the Messiah would be a descendant of David. Now that rules out every other family on the face of the earth. And as the old saying goes, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family, okay? He couldn't choose what family he was going to be born into. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us, 
that he would be born in Bethlehem, listen, in the county or the region of Ephrathah. See, the Bible makes that very clear because there was another Bethlehem up in Galilee. So the Holy Spirit zeroes in on the exact Bethlehem and understand the Bethlehem of Jesus' day, the town he was born in was very small. Well, first of all, by telling us Messiah was going to be born in a very small town in a corner of the Middle East, that eliminates every other place on the face of the earth. And because Bethlehem was not a very big town, there was not a lot of baby boys born there, which increased the odds against Messiah being born in a small town, astronomical odds against that. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, it tells us that Messiah would be born sometime before the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which took place in 70 AD. Uh, that basically eliminates every other time in the history of the world, and again, greatly increases the odds against Messiah being born in that just small window of time. And so there are many prophecies that Jesus could not have fulfilled by just reading them and doing you know, whatever he had to do to try to fulfill them. Now, before we go on, what is the purpose of prophecy? It's twofold, all right, twofold. First of all, to prove that the Bible is the Word of God. Prophecy is God's stamp of authenticity upon His Word. I'll give you one scripture. There's others. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Here's what God said. And the context was He's indicting Israel for worshiping false gods, idols. And He's basically saying these wooden idols can't talk. They don't understand. They, they you know, if they're God, let them tell us what's going to happen in the future. And God then says, remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Listen, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done. God says, look, I'm God. Nobody else can tell you what is coming in the future and be right. Listen, every single time, Deuteronomy 18, or Deuteronomy 13, I should say, it says, if any prophet comes in my name working miracles, but then says to you one thing that doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet, stone them. Because I am not guessing when I tell you what's coming. I know the future. And everything in my word, everything that I've predicted will come to pass. So we know the Bible, the prophecy in the Bible, uh, authenticates uh, God's word as being from him. But the second reason for prophecy, and the one that really um, pertains to our study this morning, it keeps hope in God's promises alive in every generation. Now, we see this especially with regard to the story of Christmas, which is the story of Jesus' first coming. After God made the initial promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would someday send a Savior who would save us from the power of sin and death, listen, he then kept affirming that promise down through the centuries with various prophecies. These prophecies, guys, served to kind of stoke the fires of hope, if you will, so that the fire would never go out and every generation would never forget the promise that God had given so that hope would remain alive until God would someday then fulfill that promise. Now this morning, I'd like to focus on just one of Jesus' first coming prophecies the one that I feel is the most important of them all. the one It's the one prophecy that is at the very heart of the Christmas story because, listen, it's the one implied in the promise that we studied last week. 
the promise that started the whole Christmas story in the first place. So turn to Genesis chapter 3 once again. Now we did look at this last week, but we're going to use it to springboard into our message this morning. Now you remember that God had placed Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden, and gave them only one prohibition. They were not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan took the form of a serpent and he deceived Eve, tempted her. She bought into his lie, ate the forbidden fruit, then gave to Adam and he ate and they both fell. So now God is pronouncing the curse. And I'll just jump down to verse 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, verse 15 is what we really want to look at. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As we said last week, verse 15 is known as the protevangelium, which literally means the first gospel, or in other words, the first place in Scripture where the gospel is mentioned or alluded to. The woman's seed, that's a reference to Messiah. The serpent's head, well, that's a reference to the devil, of course. And the idea is, what God is saying is that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to inflict a mortal wound on the serpent, this Satan, which would result in his absolute defeat. But before that would happen... Satan would first bruise the Messiah's heel. And what does that mean? Well, as we said last time, it's a reference to the physical suffering and death Jesus would endure on the cross, but which would not result in his ultimate defeat. Because we know 2,000 years after the fact, looking back at the cross and so on, that three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, stepped from that tomb victorious, defeating sin, Satan, and death itself. So Satan would have a momentary victory, I'm sure that when Jesus hung on that cross and died, Satan and his demons threw a party in the councils of hell, they had been victorious. Of course, that wasn't the final word on the subject. Three days later, God had the final word. Guess again. And Jesus stepped from that tomb alive. So ultimately, Jesus Christ is going to crush the serpent's head. That's coming. Jesus bought and paid for our redemption on Calvary's cross. He's coming again to take possession of this world. And when he does, he's going to toss the usurper into hell, the lake of fire, because uh, Satan is the god of this world, but not for very long. Jesus Christ is going to oust him and sit down on the throne, his rightful place as king of the world, right? The fact that he's called the woman's seed, listen, is a reference to the virgin birth. You see, every first-year biology student knows that the seed in conception comes from the man, not the woman. The woman provides the egg that the man's seed fertilizes. For centuries, Christian theologians have taught that the seed of the woman, that phrase out of Genesis 3, is a clear reference that this Redeemer, this Deliverer, this Messiah would be virgin-born. You say, are you reading a little too much into Genesis 3.15? Well, that's where I want to focus this morning now, on the prophecy that comes in at this point that uh, we want to spend the rest of our time focusing on. So turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7 was given by God to the prophet Isaiah to the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had been taken captive about 100 years earlier by the Assyrians, so they were out of their land to the north. The southern kingdom of Judah had some good kings. They lasted a little longer, about 115 years longer before 
uh, God sent the Babylonians because of the immorality and idolatry among God's people. But uh, before that happened, he gave them a glimmer of hope. He said to them in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, guys, much controversy has swirled around this prophecy of the virgin giving birth. You see, liberal theologians who deny the virgin birth are quick to point out that the Hebrew word translated virgin is Alma. Alma. And they say the word Alma, strictly speaking, means a young woman of marriageable age and therefore doesn't have to mean a virgin. However, the word Alma is never used in the Old Testament to speak of a married woman, only a young single woman. So this leaves two options. Now listen, two options all you got. The Alma prophesied about in Isaiah 7.14 must either be A, a young woman who conceived a child out of wedlock, or B, a virgin. Only two choices. And the fact that Isaiah uses the definite article, the virgin, he didn't say, and a virgin will conceive. In the Hebrew, that's significant because it means this is a very specific woman, a very special conception. This is unique as the idea among all the conceptions, all the women. A unique situation is the idea, and therefore would be, listen, a clear sign from God that he was at work. I mean, listen, the birth of a child to a young unmarried woman is so common, even in Isaiah's day, it really isn't a sign of anything. Furthermore, the word Alma always indicates a virgin in every other place in the Old Testament where the word appears. In fact, Martin Luther offered a hundred guilders to anyone who could show any other place in the Old Testament where the word Alma is translated young woman rather than virgin. And finally, for evangelical Christians, all controversy has been put to rest by Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he quoted Isaiah 7 verse 14 in his gospel chapter 1 verse 23 he chose the Greek word parthenos behold a parthenos will conceive and bear a son and listen guys nobody disputes that the word parthenos in Greek always means a virgin now the question is why would this deliverer need to be born of a virgin that's a good question why would this Messiah need to be virgin-born? It's because the Bible teaches that the sin nature and, of course, the curse is passed down, listen, from the father to the children, not from the mother to the children. That's not to say the mother is sinless. Of course, she's a sinner. It just says in God's economy, we don't have time to really get into all the reasons why, but the Bible teaches that sin is passed down from the father to the children. And if Messiah would have had an earthly father, he would have inherited a sin nature from him, which ultimately would have been passed down through mankind's first father, Adam. But if the Messiah had an earthly father, he would have had a sin nature. And therefore, he couldn't have died for our sins because he himself would also have been a sinner. Therefore, this Redeemer couldn't have been a mere mortal man. A man, yes, but not a fallen man, which means he would have to be virgin-born. Because, again, 
earthly father, he would have inherited a sin nature, original sin from his earthly father. He could have died for sinners then. So this redeemer, if he was going to ultimately die in our place, had to be sinless, which means he had to be virgin born. And the only possibility for that would be if this Messiah could somehow supernaturally be implanted in the womb of a virgin by God himself. Very important, okay? Turn to Luke chapter 1. Of course, this is at the heart of the Christmas story. We'll no doubt touch on it again next week. We'll be repeating some of these scriptures because they dovetail together. But I'm going to read to you uh, out of Luke 1 from the NLT. And uh, let's pick it up in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged, or actually betrothed, a little different, to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he will be very great and be called the Son of the Most High, Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, How can this happen? Listen, I am a virgin. And the angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Verse 37, For nothing is impossible with God. God would put within Mary's womb the very seed of God, fertilizing her egg. She was a virgin. Without sexual contact, physically speaking, God would plant in her womb the seed of God, fertilizing the egg and bringing forth a unique one, the Messiah. Turn to 1 John 3. In 1 John 3, John is basically saying, how can we know the children of God? And the children of the devil, or those who are really saved and those who are not saved. And John just gives us a kind of an easy litmus test. He said in verse 7, 1 John 3, verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The key word there is practices. What John is saying is that Christians are not perfect, but they practice righteousness. That is the pattern of their life, for the most part. He said in verse 8, He who sins, and the idea is in the Greek, He who sins perpetually, habitually, is of the devil. For the devil is sin from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. What's he talking about? The incarnation. The incarnation. For this purpose, the Son of God came down to the earth. The idea was born among us that he might eventually grow up as the idea and destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now, 
people have read that and become unglued because they're thinking to themselves, the Bible teaches if you're really saved, you'll never sin again. And it's given rise to a false doctrine called Christian perfectionism, which basically teaches once you're a Christian, you never sin again. I always get a kick out of the people who believe that. I would love to be a fly on the wall of their house or in their cars they're driving on the expressway in rush hour. And I know better, okay? The idea is that whoever is born of God, the Greek says, does not habitually sin. Why? Because his seed remains in him, that person. And he cannot live habitually in sin because he has been born of God. Now hear me out, okay? And I just want you to understand that when the father placed the seed of God in the womb of Mary, fertilizing her egg and giving birth to the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, that was a unique situation, right? There's never been anybody like Jesus before or since that point. And we are sons and daughters by adoption, that is true. However, however, as John says, once you give your heart to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes inside. And in, in a sense, the seed of God now takes up residence within us. And we are born of the Spirit. We are not the same people we once were. We are now a unique creation separate from the physical birth, right? How do you get into heaven? There's two births, okay? You're born once physically, you've got to be born again spiritually. And that's the idea. So we are unique and yet not like Jesus who is absolutely unique in and of himself. But I just wanted you to see that, you know, as God the Father placed the seed of God in the womb of Mary, a unique thing happened. Mary uh, conceived in her womb and brought forth a son eventually that she called Jesus. As the angel Gabriel said to her, you're to call his name Jesus. The word Jesus means uh, Jehovah is salvation because he will save his people from their sins. Turn back to Matthew 1, or actually turn there. because I want to read you again what Matthew says. As he quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, but he adds something else, a little explanation that we need to understand. And of course, and we'll probably touch on this again next week, no doubt, but Joseph was betrothed to Mary. And at one point he discovers she's pregnant. He knows he's not the father. He assumes she's had an affair on him. Because when you were betrothed back then, you were technically married, although the marriage wasn't consummated yet. Joseph, being a righteous guy, he could have brought her in and had her a public, made a public spectacle out of her, and they would have stoned her, according to the law. But he was a, a good guy and decided he loved Mary and wanted to put her away quietly, uh, divorce her, really. And one night in a dream, uh, the Lord spoke to him and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then Matthew quotes, okay, from Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. But here's what Matthew adds, which is translated, God with us. Guys, again, Jesus was no mere man. He was and is the Son of God, God in human form, the God-man, the God-man, fully God and fully man, as the theologians make sure that they point out. Mary was his, was his mother, God the Father was his father. And as such, he was the only man, listen, ever born who was born without sin. You say, what about Adam? Adam wasn't born, Adam was made out of the dust of the earth. 
Jesus Christ was the only human being ever born who was born without a sin nature, without original sin. Therefore, the only man in history who could die for our sins, since the Bible says that it had to be the innocent who died for the guilty. Sinners can't die for sinners. Therefore, it would require the death of somebody who did not have sin on their soul. And that would only be the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, and let me say this, uh, because I, I just need to, there are those who are harboring a lot of delusions and misconceptions, not in this room, perhaps, uh, but there's a lot of cults out there who have a lot of twisted ideas about Jesus. Some of them believe that um, at one point God created Jesus, okay? That, uh, you know, when he uh, was conceived in Mary's womb, that's when he began. That's when his life began. And, of course, he was born and then walked among us and so on. That is absolutely untrue. Absolutely untrue. Jesus Christ, when he came into this world, that's when he was born a human being. That's not when he came into existence. In fact, he never came into existence. He's always existed. He is the eternal God, right? Turn to John, Gospel of John, chapter 1. Because John spends his entire gospel teaching us how that there is only eternal life in Jesus, the Son of God. But he wants us to know exactly who he's talking about. So we have no misconceptions. So in John chapter 1, he opens up with 18 verses of a prologue which is a statement of faith concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And he starts out in verse 1, one of the most majestic passages in the Bible concerning Christ, John 1, starting with verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's a title for Jesus Christ. If you doubt me, read Revelation 19. Revelation 19. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ, and the Word was with God. The Greek means eye to eye with, face to face with, on an equal level with, or in other words, Jesus Christ, the Word, was equal with the Father. You can't be equal with God unless you are God, okay? So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, way back in the very beginning, when, when the creation was made. All things were made through Him. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So Jesus Christ created all things. Now, drop down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us speaks of the incarnation, which is the climax of the story of Christmas. But listen, it's not the climax of the story of redemption. Okay, just so you understand that. We think of the story of Christmas, it climaxes with Jesus' birth in that stable, right? But really, since the story of Christmas is really the story of redemption, the story of redemption does not climax in that manger. And we'll, I'll show you what I mean in a second. See, the whole purpose of redemptive history is so that paradise lost could someday be paradise found. Or in other words, that fellowship with God, which was lost in the Garden of Eden because of man's sin, could somehow someday be restored so that man and God could once again be in perfect fellowship with each other forever, forever. Fellowship is a word that we think we understand, but probably don't really. There's no really no English word that we could use to translate that one Greek word. It has so many shades of meaning. When we talk about fellowship, okay, we, we tend to mean, you know, you hear people talking, after church we stayed in fellowship for a while. What does that mean? Well, we had coffee and donuts and we talked. There's nothing wrong with that, I'm, I'm nothing against that. 
when the Bible talks about fellowship, it's kind of a unique thing. It's becoming one with others. God was one with man in the garden. And I say, when I say one, I'm not saying man was God and God was man. That's metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. I'm just saying that God had a connection with us. Uh, we were in communion with God. I say we, I mean Adam and Eve. Uh, had this oneness with God in the sense they were in, in communion with Him, connected to Him in a very powerful way. That was what God had always wanted for man and himself. God is a God of love. God is a, a, a loving, giving God. He wanted to share what, uh, Himself with His creation. He wanted to have fellowship with man on a very deep level. And so He put man in a garden, perfect environment, where man exercises free will and rebellion against God when He did man fell. He was severed from God. Sin, as the Bible says in Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2, sin always separates us from God. And so that set in motion the whole plan of redemption, which really started in eternity past because God knew it was going to happen, but I don't want to confuse you though. But from an earthly standpoint, the plan of redemption was now put into place. And the goal of redemption was that God wanted to restore fellowship with himself and man. He wanted us to have this oneness again where man could worship God, because that's what communion is, and could enjoy him for all eternity. That's always been the goal of redemptive history, that God could be our Emmanuel, which means God with us forever, unbroken fellowship. Now, God tried to illustrate this with a nation. If you study the history of the Old Testament, of course, it's the history of Israel. And God at one point actually uh, creates a nation, which started with a Gentile named Abram. And God led him away from his uh, home in Mesopotamia, brought him to Canaan. And from Abram, who later became Abraham, God made a brand new nation, the nation of Israel. And God chose Israel to be kind of an object lesson to the rest of the world of this whole principle. How God wanted to become one. Uh, and in this case, with a single nation, just to be an example. But the nation of Israel was to be was his special people, uh, a people that were in fellowship with him, a nation that he would be with, a nation that he would pour upon his blessings and his provision, protection, and love, and so on. And that worked for a little while until Israel, after a while, got into idolatry and gross immorality. And uh, their sin then separated them from God. God could no longer fellowship. He sent prophet after prophet to encourage them uh, to repent so that they can be in fellowship again. But the nation had got so far away from God, so involved in sin and immorality, that at one point God could not even give them grace anymore. So we read in Ezekiel chapter 10, how at one point the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, lifted up off the mercy seat, the throne of God on the earth, and began to move towards the door of the temple, crossing the threshold, stopping briefly as if to look back at what had once been, this beautiful fellowship that he had known with the nation. Before the Shekinah glory then disappeared across the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives, and into the wilderness. At that point, God was no longer with Israel. He was not their Emmanuel. See, he always wanted to be with them. He always wanted to be in fellowship with them. But guys, the problem was always sin. Sin was the thing that kept breaking man's fellowship with God. And listen, many people in the Jewish history wanted to obey God. They weren't all rebels. There were many who really wanted to walk with God and obey everything he had commanded, but they always failed. 
they always wound up sinning and fellowship was broken. Because as Jesus said to Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. No matter how hard we try to walk with God, to keep the commandments, we're always going to blow it, right? So that means our fellowship with God will always be broken until we get it right with him and so on, until they brought the animal sacrifices and the old covenant and so on and so forth. So what God did was, and believe me when I tell you this, this wasn't something that dawned on God after a while. Oh, you know what? This isn't working. Maybe I better do something different. No, this wasn't God's plan from the very beginning. That God was going to take fellowship right out of the hands of man and put it on himself. The responsibility to keep fellowship from being broken. You say, what are you talking about? God says there's coming a day. He said this was people in the old covenant. There's coming a day when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand, led them out of Egypt. The covenant which they broke, I'm going to live with inside of them. I'm going to write my laws in their hearts. And they're going to be a new creation who will obey me from the heart. See, that's the beautiful thing about what we're talking about. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God moves inside, God the Spirit. He makes us a brand new creation. And from that moment on, we will never be separated from him ever again. You say, well, wait a minute, I still sin. I still blow it. Doesn't that separate me from God on a practical level? But it never causes God to disown you. It never causes God to say you're out of the family. You're a child. And once you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will always be a child of God. Now, if you sin, if you blow it, he'll chasten, he'll discipline. But he still loves you. He'll never forsake you. He'll always be with you. Didn't Jesus say that? Now that you're my children, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you how long? Always. 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 Because the new covenant took positional fellowship, salvation out of our hands and put it right on the shoulders of God himself. That's how God could be God with us, our Emmanuel, for the rest of eternity, not just for the rest of our lives. Now let me just say this as we bring this to a close. You say, well, that's all well and fine and, and all, and I appreciate all that, but you know what? Things are pretty rough right now for us, me and my family. I'm out of work. Uh, there's a lot of problems. Uh, my marriage isn't doing so well. Um, I've gotten back into alcohol or this or that. Or I look at the news and I see that we're living in a very dark and troublesome time politically, morally, and even spiritually. I need some practical input. I mean, what you're saying is great, and I thank God for it, but you know what? Right now, I just need to know from God how I'm going to be able to cope with all the uncertainty of the future, you know? All these problems that are facing me and my family. I mean, how do we get by? This, of course, Christmas season should be a time of great joy. It's a time that plunges many people and many families into the deepest despair of the whole year. There's more suicides committed during the Christmas season than any other time in the, in the, during the year. I mean, the time that should be a time of great joy is we remember the Prince of Peace being born. For a lot of people, there is no peace. It's nothing but turmoil, unhappiness, misery, uncertainty, and so on. Christians are not, are not immune either. So how do we get through it? How do we deal with all the uncertainty and stress and fear of the future? Guys, can I, can I say something that you might go, this is it? I sat here for 40 minutes to hear you say, this 
The answer is pretty simple. Didn't Peter say that sometimes the things that we need to be reminded of are the simple things? I put you in remembrance of that which is basic, Peter said, because we often stumble at the basics. Look, how are we as children of God to cope with all the stress, fear, and uncertainty of the future? Listen to me, because it gets right into our message. By clinging to God's promises and God's prophecies. By clinging to God's promises and God's prophecies. Guys, I don't know what else to say to you except direct you back to the Word of God. I mean, I know you want something really profound, but you know what? The truth is often simple. And if it's simple, it doesn't mean it's any less profound than if it was something very deep. Have you ever noticed that God keeps his truths pretty simple because he wants everyone to be able to grasp them? If he made them very, very deep, only the deepest thinkers, the greatest theologians would be able to grasp these concepts. And that would leave most of us out, right? And it would leave me out because God takes the foolish, the weak, the base, the nobodies. Well, here we are, Lord. But see, he wants to keep it simple because he wants all of us to be able to grasp. Here's the bottom line. There's a lot of uncertainty in the world. Yes, I know that. Didn't the Bible say this was going to happen before Jesus returned? Well, I don't know where my next meal is coming from. I don't know where the rent's coming from this month. Well, didn't God promise to provide all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? I mean, things are so bad. I mean, I just don't know if I can live in this world anymore. Well, that's, I understand that. I mean, doesn't the Bible say in Psalm 37, someday you're going to look for the wicked, they won't be found? I mean, God's going to wipe the wicked away from the earth and only the meek will remain God's people. Those who have put their faith in him. You'll look for the wicked, they won't be found because the meek will inherit the earth. I don't know about you guys, but the older I get in my walk, the more simple I want to keep it. Just give me God's word. You know, I think I've told you this before. I used to get up in the morning. The first thing I did was to turn on the computer and read the news. I remember one day, the news was so bad, I got so worked up, so angry, so frustrated, it ruined my entire day. And I felt the Lord was speaking to me at that point. He says, don't start your day with the news. Start your day with my word. And so from that day on, every day I get up, make a cup of coffee, sit down, and I just read the word. I just read the word. I saturate my mind with the word of God. I look at the promises. I read the prophecies. And I know that Jesus Christ is coming back soon to fix this mess. And that's the only thing that gives me hope. I don't know what you're turning towards to get you through the day. Hopefully it's not alcohol and drugs and other things. Because that's what the world's turning to. We turn to his word. And we cling to his promises, right? When God gave Israel the promise, yes, it's bad. It's because of you guys. He's saying it's because of you, Israel, it's bad. You're, the, the nation has rebelled against me. But I haven't turned my back on it. I'm still at work. Someday I'm going to send a redeemer. He's going to be virgin born. You're going to call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And you know what? I would imagine that gave the nation great comfort for those who believed it and clung to it. See, a promise of God does you no good if you don't believe it and cling to it. But listen, guys, and we're done. What they had to hope for 
we have seen the fulfillment of because for us, our Emmanuel has come. And that is what Christmas celebrates. And Jesus gave us the same promise to hold on to, to bring comfort to our hearts in these difficult and troublesome days we're living in. I'm with you always. I'm your Emmanuel. Keeping in mind or keep reminding yourself that God is with you. That's how you get through these things. You keep reminding yourself that God is with you. He will never stop being with you. And anything you're going through in the way of a problem or a crisis, no matter how black things look, you keep reminding yourself that he is there, he is with you, and that with God nothing shall be impossible. I mean, that's the heart of the story of Christmas, right? The angel Gabriel comes to Mary, says, you've been chosen by God to be a mother of Messiah. You're going to conceive a child and bring forth a son. And Mary goes, how can that be? I'm a virgin. Because with God, all things are possible. Plug your name into that. How can I be healed of this cancer? It's, they say it's terminal. God's with you. With God, nothing is impossible. I've been out of work for several years. I don't see any prospects on the horizon. How are we going to pay our bills? How are we going to get in through the, this year or this season? God is with you. And he's promised to provide all your needs. He's promised to take care of you. If God is for us, who can be against us? We lose sight of this. We forget he is with us. Oh, we know it theologically and theoretically, but often practically we forget it. We think we're on our own. We think we're doing this all by ourselves. That nobody's here to help us. And the whole message of Christmas is, know that God came to be with us. And if you're a Christian this morning, he came into your heart when you accepted Christ, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. So next week we will look at part three of the story of Christmas, which revolves around a couple of special people. And we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ, paradise lost has been paradise found. Someday we're going to spend eternity with you in the paradise of heaven. Fellowship lost, broken in the garden, has been fellowship restored in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And because he lives in our hearts, we will never be separated from you ever again. And Lord, practically speaking, you're not just the God of eternity, you're the God of time. And Lord, you want to take care of us, to show us that you're with us. You want to provide our needs. You want to answer our prayers. Lord, you want to bless our lives. But we must believe that you're with us. And that, Lord, your promises are true. And so, Lord, give us grace as we read your word to soak it in. To remind ourselves of the promises. To hold on to the prophecies which tell us, look, don't lose heart. The promises will be fulfilled. Give us grace, Lord. And, Father, we ask you to continue to bless this series for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.